Alright, so I have to talk to all of you now because apparently everyone thinks I've lost my mind. So what's happened, and I wanted to do a little little recording to talk it out instead of just, um, I don't know, trying to tweet through this or writing some monstrous essay. What's happened is that on Twitter, and actually in media over the last several months, my opinion about voting in the upcoming 2020 presidential election has slowly and rather painfully, to be honest with you, shifted from a position of I don't know what I'm going to do because I don't like either of my options to I can't possibly vote for Biden to uh, I am going to vote for myself because I live in a red state and uh, Trump is going to win my state anyway, to um, I think I'm going to have to vote for Trump. Um, not that I want to. In fact, uh, I said on Twitter that until the Democrats are going to walk back where they are, or really the left, it's not really the Democrats, and that's a complicated issue around this, until they're going to walk back where they are with a lot of this radicalism, um, I have to not only not vote for them, but I feel compelled to vote defensively against them. And I think people need to understand that this is not what a lot of people either hope or fear or think that it is. This is certainly not full-throated support for Trump. Let me begin with that. I have been quite critical of Trump throughout his entire presidency and before his presidency. I wrote an article in 2016 that no longer exists for some reason or another that argued that if uh, the left wanted Trump to win, they should keep calling him racist. And the point was that they should stop calling him racist to get out of this, what I now recognize as critical race theory-based analysis uh, of his candidacy at the time and then presidency and back away from that line because uh, it would lead to him winning is what I perceived in summer of 2016, which turned out at least whether it's the reason he won or not is what happened. He won, and many people, though whether it's decisive or not is hard to say, many people certainly contribute or say that that contributes to, to why he won. So I've been critical all along. Uh, I got into what I'm doing, fighting the woke left, specifically because I wanted to make left-wing parties, center-left-wing parties, rooted in universal liberalism, I should point out, electable again, um, because they are not. They are not now because they've taken up too much critical theory. They have taken up far too much of a rather radical approach to progressivism that does not stay rooted even in liberal values, values like individualism, despite what they say as calling themselves the party of science in use of scientific evidence and rationality and reason. This is not what's happening. And left-wing parties have become increasingly unelectable. And so I got into the entire criticism of the woke thing, specifically with the hope of trying to make reasonable left-wing parties come back to the fore and to be electable to defeat what I thought, thought and still think is a realistic concern with parties on the right. Um, that hasn't changed. As for Trump himself, I'm not a big fan of the way 
that Trump governs, and I mean that in both regards. People challenge me frequently, you know, about his policy. Well, you know, he has governed as a rather run-of-the-mill, middle-of-the-line Republican in terms of much of his policies, and for me, being that I'm actually on the left, I'm not a huge fan of that. I don't think it's a disaster. I don't freak out about it. I don't scream at the sky over it. I do, however, not actually agree with a lot of conservative policy. Um, I don't claim to know the right answers about policy, but my intuitions and my analysis indicate uh, something more to the left of what the Republican Party is doing right now. So, um, in fact, to speak for a moment about my politics, I don't. People talk about being politically homeless, and I, I'm like, son, you don't even know what it's like to be politically homeless. I'm a thing that doesn't exist. I've been telling people for years, and I'm a left wing libertarian, and people just laugh at me. And if you actually look at what libertarians claim to believe, sort of more in this kind of primitive uh, paleo libertarian thing that's become ascendant now, I'm not a libertarian. I don't think taxes are theft. I think taxes are okay. I think they're a necessary part of a functioning system. I do think regulation in a reasonable sense is important and valuable. I'm not the kind of libertarian that goes around calling themselves a libertarian these days, but under the broad understandings of of what libertarian thought is about, uh, that being that we should have the smallest government possible, no excess government, uh, in order to do the job that it needs to do, and that individual freedoms and the liberty of citizens being secured is is the role of government, the primary role of government. Um, in those senses, I am actually philosophically libertarian. I think it's more accurate to say that I'm what's called a traditional liberal, but that's liberal in the old sense, and liberal in the old sense is libertarian today in some other sense. So it's a little complicated, all of these words meaning many things at once. Nonetheless, I have described or tried to describe myself to my libertarian friends, my genuinely libertarian friends, as being a left-wing libertarian, which they say don't ex- doesn't exist or can't exist by definition because left-wing implies some degree of statism. Well, I'm not a rampant anti-statist. I don't want there to be excess state, and I don't want there to be tyrannical state but I do believe there should be some state. And I've also tried to describe myself as a so-called minarchist, meaning uh, rule by minimal government, uh, a minarchist who believes in a much bigger min than most people who use that term. So that kind of places me in political philosophy somewhere on that so-called political compass test that many people have taken with the four quadrants. I usually score pretty far down in the lower left corner, which means I'm pretty strongly libertarian and pretty far to the left. I will admit that over the past year, the last couple of times that I've checked on the test, I've moved from a position that was much further to the left to a place that's much more in the center of the left, but it is still distinctly in the middle of the left range on that compass. And as far as my libertarian axis goes, I know that it's difficult to convey numbers without a picture, but it was in the range of negative 7.5 out of 10, and it remains at about negative 7.5 out of 10, whereas my left leaning has moved from roughly negative 7.5 to roughly negative 5. So I still remain pretty left liberal in the sense where liberal means what people are now saying, small l liberal, which means libertarian, but left-oriented. So 
I do actually have many progressive values. I do think that a progressive tax structure is a good idea and so on and so forth. So I do have some issues with the way that Trump governs, but he's not governed in a way that is particularly ridiculous for a right-wing politician who has been democratically elected in our American system. And it's that American system that I'm 100% behind, um, even if somebody that represents my politics is not currently the one sitting in the chair in the Oval Office. So Trump, beyond that, I have criticized in the past for being a postmodern president, and you will know for sure if you follow my work that I'm no fan of postmodernism, and that, of course, I find concerning as well. I think that certain actions that Trump takes, the way he plays with the media, the way he plays with his role as presidential, are actually deconstructive. Some of that may be necessary, some of it may be speaking truth to power, but I think it's reckless, uh, and that I think that he plays with it a bit more strongly than is advisable. I know I do this myself, but I'm not in the office of the president. I do think that the uh, structure of the state should be taken a little bit more seriously um, than he does, and so I find things like some of his antics where, you know, necessarily name-calling or the... Uh, uh, you know, it stands out that he made that one video, and I know it's it's a strange thing to have stand out, and it's not that it's particularly chilling, but it's, it's you know about this video he put out about him being reelected every year, and it like went to infinity or something. Trump twenty twenty, Trump twenty twenty four, Trump twenty twenty eight, Trump twenty thirty two, Trump twenty thirty six, and it went faster and faster and faster. Trump infinity, and that deconstructs the idea of the tradition of term limits that's now become part of our uh, American approach to the presidency that I think um, need not be deconstructed. I do also take some measure of concern with Trump's rhetoric. I'm not saying that he's boorish. I'm not saying that he's coarse or rude or that he speaks poorly or any of this to the degree that those are true, I'm actually not bothered by those things. Uh, it, they just don't bother me. What bothers me is that some of his rhetoric that he lays out, whether it's to bait the media, whatever the whatever his purpose is, some of the, me, the, the rhetoric that he lays out flirts with authoritarianism in ways that I'm frankly uncomfortable with. Uh, and... I'm no friend of authoritarianism because I'm so far into the libertarian axis. I don't think that Trump is governing as an authoritarian. I did not say that. I said that he flirts with authoritarian rhetoric, which I find to be concerning. And especially if you set that against the kind of strongman populist demagoguery that has in the past produced authoritarian regimes, I can understand why people have some concerns, and I had some of those concerns for a while, but I still see no evidence that leads me to believe that he would act inappropriately on those things. So this is um, why I don't particularly support Trump. Uh, he doesn't represent my politics, or maybe he would if he wasn't presiding as a Republican, but he doesn't represent my politics as he's governing. He does things I find disconcerting around the office of the presidency and with concern to the way that he 
approaches issues that are rightfully in the kind of authoritarian wheelhouse. So I find there to be some issues. There's also the bigger, grander issue, the elephant in the room, that he absolutely pisses people off. And some of that I have now decided is well-deserved, well-earned, well-needed. He is, in fact, putting his finger on the sore or on some of the sores and driving certain entities that I think have left the rails and were able to hide it quite well to reveal that they're completely off the rails. And I'm actually getting to be thankful for that. So my views on Trump are getting more complex, more nuanced. Um, I would not vote for him, however, under normal circumstances. In fact, if we were under normal circumstances, I would probably be urging, as I did in 2016, as I did in 2018, for everybody to be going out and voting down the line blue to um, punish the Republican Party for what I see as a lot of behavior that was, in many regards, you know, right near, I mean, it was all legal, but it was right near the edge. It violated the spirit of the rules, and I think that this was a constant throughout the Obama tenure. Again, whether that's right or wrong in the grand political scheme, that's a question for debate. But I think that this is what happened, and this is what I would be doing if things were normal. Things are not normal. Things are very not normal. So... In July, I had the opportunity to go talk to Joe Rogan on his podcast. Many people saw it. I think it had 2 million views in the first two weeks or something. I think it's close to 3 million views now. And the night before, I was in a hotel room in Los Angeles. COVID lockdowns. Can't go do anything. I was exhausted. I didn't feel like doing anything anyway. And I was extraordinarily agitated. A lot of people don't know what was going on behind the scenes then, of course, because I was by myself in a hotel room in L.A. And um, I was very agitated. Um, I was very worked up. And what I wanted to talk to Joe about, and I did not really talk to Joe about, is how absolutely angry, livid I was by the last day of June, which is actually when I would have been in that hotel room that night, at how we were being gaslit and lied to by the media, by our left-wing politicians, major Democratic figures, including both Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, um, who were not at that time denouncing the riots, though they have since, they were actually encouraging the the outbreaks of protests, as they called them. The media were telling us that all of a sudden this coronavirus that's had us locked down for months is irrelevant in the face of crusading for racial justice. And this is all rooted in critical race theory, and I know that. I know that as well as or better than anybody on this planet. And I stared at this in disbelief. I stared at a man on national television with a burning building behind him telling us that the protests were mostly peaceful. And Kamala Harris came out and said that we should support this fund that was paying to bail out the people setting the buildings on fire. And I thought, this is not normal. And I was absolutely infuriated that night, June 30th, 
in that hotel room in Los Angeles. Oh, sweet. Joe put me up nice. Um, ninth floor, Hilton. Not bad. So I'm in this nice room looking out the out the window off this balcony. I had it. I had a balcony. Um, beautiful night for LA, I guess. COVID, you know, there's not really not any pollution going on. And so, and I'm just like agitated. I'm pacing. I'm talking fast. I'm on the phone talking to people, what I might say, what I might try to hit, what kind of topics I have to get into talking to Joe, my chance to talk about this issue to a properly huge audience. And all I keep coming back to is how pissed off I am about the gaslighting and the lies and the media and the fact that our major media enterprises and major democratic politicians are lying to us about it. And so something shifted. Actually, something shifted the first time buildings were set on fire. Um, Mike Nana and Benjamin Boyce and I got together and had a podcast, and I was drinking um, kind of a lot, and we just kind of like I don't want to, I don't know, we, we, we took the gloves off a bit, as we said. We just talked. We just talked more plainly about this issue. We talked about this issue much more the way that we talked about it privately than we ever had publicly, trying to craft a message and all of this crap. We weren't dishonest about anything we did, but we were trying to be more careful and measured. And then they started setting buildings on fire and gaslighting us about it. And it was like, no, we're just going to tell it how it is. So anyway, I end up going on Joe Rogan. I don't end up, I'm so tired. Nobody knows this, but I woke up at like four in the morning because I'm from the East Coast, well, Eastern time anyway. And I, I was LA, so I just woke up at like four in the morning. I don't sleep well in hotels as it is. Wake up at like four in the morning. I can't go back to bed. I'm exhausted by the time we finally tape with Joe. So everybody's like, oh, your pacing was so great. Your timing, you weren't, you weren't in a rush. You were so calm. Yeah, I was freaking exhausted and had like one of the worst headaches I've ever had in my life, the entire interview. And so it goes, slowed me down a little bit. So I didn't end up ranting at all about how mad I am or was and still am about being lied to that way. So something's badly off. And so did any of this calm down? You know, okay, June 30th, that's a whole month of these riots. Has anything calmed down? No, well, hmm. A little. It's not total mayhem every night, but there's mayhem every night still, weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks later. And the articles have started to come out, and we have these things happening at the debates. Joe Biden, will you pack the court? Will you add members? Now, let me get something straight for everybody on Twitter who's stupid. Packing the court does not mean putting people on your side in the court. Packing the court means adding justices to the court to change its composition. Okay, so I don't want to hear it. Don't say, oh, the Republicans are packing the court. No, they did pack the court in the 1860s, which is the last time that happened. Uh, but that's not happened in an awful long time. And it's been stably nine people for a really long time. Packing the court means that you don't like the composition on the court, so you add people to it until you do like the composition on the court. That's a different thing. And so Joe Biden, are you going to do this? Doesn't answer. Points, looks down the barrel of the camera in the first presidential debate and just rants to the American people about how important it is to vote or something completely off the topic until his time runs out. 
just runs down the clock completely, completely uh, unabashedly. Doesn't answer the question, refuses to answer the question. Kamala Harris gets asked straight by Mike Pence, who pushes her and pushes her and pushes her. I've thought, as a matter of fact, pardon pardon your tender ears, I was with a uh, conservative person watching the vice presidential debate, and I said at least three or four times that Mike Pence looks like a dildo. I'm not a huge fan of, this was, you know, just a few weeks ago, I'm not a huge fan of these people, okay? And Mike Pence puts Kamala Harris on the spot and is like, are you guys going to add justices to the court to get what you want out of it? And she pulls the same trick. She doesn't answer the question. She says, oh, you want to talk about that? I want to talk about that. Let's say some crap about Honest Abe or some other total deflection. Never answers it. Pence calls her out. But nevertheless, she never had to say it. Later on, it comes down to that we don't need to know whether they're going to do that. And their messaging around has been very strange. Um, but nevertheless, we have not heard them say unequivocally that they will not just start adding justices to the court. But meanwhile, I'm flooded with these articles. I'm seeing these articles written all over the place. If the if, if the Republicans win, we need to start ignoring the court. No, sorry, if the Democrats win, we need to just ignore the Supreme Court. We need to redefine what the Supreme Court does so that its jurisdiction is made much smaller so that it can't stop a Democratic government if the Democrats win. We need to ignore the court. We need to ignore the Supreme Court. We need to possibly fill the court with sympathetic judges. We need to make the court more balanced to uh, progressive, woke bullshit. And we can't get a straight answer out of the mainstream politicians. Meanwhile, I go reading some of the things that they're putting on their uh, website, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. I go and I, I read their racial equity plan, Build Back Better, um, all this rhetoric. Um, it doesn't sit well. I don't like racial equity. I don't think that that's the way to go. I like equality. I've been absolutely clear about that with a great deal of understanding of the relevant theory, which is called social equity theory, which has been hijacked by critical race theory. And I don't think equity is the right way to go. I think that equity in practice is going to result in some weird combination of A, affirmative action rebooted, B, reparations hidden under a different name so that they can still be demanded under the regular name, and C, getting rid of measurement tools that would allow for there to be accountability or to say that things have been fulfilled. So equity will turn into more demands for equity and for claims that equity has not been achieved no matter what. Equity will be assessed historically, so we'll see it working functionally like reparations. It will also be assessed according to the diversity and inclusion protocols, now including belonging, and those protocols are designed specifically to make sure that they only hire the right kind of diversity. I did a podcast recently with a Indian doctor, or Indian-American doctor, I suppose, an American doctor from whose family is from India at any rate, and he was talking about how in his own field of cardiology, they showed this racial makeup in some year, and then they showed the racial demographic in some other year, and in the second year, it was flattened down to white black and Latino. And he said, you know, well, where am I on the chart? And it was explained to him in 
fairly simple terms that he counted as white now, and that he's the wrong kind of diversity. And these are the kinds of rubrics that are being used, but I, I, I know how the theory works. I know what the point is. Diversity and inclusion is really about installing uh, people who have a critical consciousness about their identities and finding reasons under inclusion and belonging now paradigms to remove people who aren't and to make uh, special accommodations to keep in the critical theorists. I understand what's going on. And so I'm not behind this. So I'm seeing these things. And I, I went on Glenn Beck, uh, I think that was in August, just before Cynical Theories came out. And Glenn catches me at the very end. I'm on his podcast. Um, he catches me at the very end and he says, you know, we've had a great conversation, which is true. I think Glenn's an interesting and great guy. Uh, again, a man I don't agree with in many regards, but nevertheless, I would consider him a friend. And I am happy, by the way, to be making friends with people I don't agree with and having genuine relationships with people that I have substantive differences with. It's been a very great, growing, and thought-provoking process, and also one of expanding and genuine, genuinely expanding my sense of humanity and my like for my fellow man. It's been all good. Uh, but he catches me at the end and asks me who I'm going to vote for, not he says he didn't want to politicize it. Maybe he did. I don't care. Um, but I was quite forthright with him. He told me I didn't have to answer, and I did answer, and I said that I couldn't vote for Biden at that point. I could not vote for Biden. And the, the, the culmination of what had been happening over the summer with the riots, the radical leftism, the whole thing, plus understanding how it works. So we've got to talk about how it works. But first, I'll get to the very point of how I finally got to the point where I said, you know what, unless something very radical changes in the next week or two, which frankly is not going to happen, I'm actually just going to vote for Republicans. I'm going to vote for Trump. I said on Twitter, I am going to do this unhappily. And I mean it. It is unhappily. I don't want to have to do this. I very sheepishly, I will confess, I'm human, believe it or not, that in 2016, somebody just after the election, I think I was expressing my despair on Twitter, told me I would vote for some troll, told me I would vote for Trump in 2020, and I have never forgot it. Somebody with like 10 followers or something. And I was like, no, screw that guy, I will not, no matter what. And that's actually been the biggest bulwark to giving in to say, well, Biden can't be elected, therefore I'll vote for Trump, to my entire thought process. That, by the way, so think twice before you go on there and be a dickhead to people on Twitter, because you might actually be creating a lot of the opposite of what you want to create. Yeah, I know, mea culpa, whatever. Uh, I'm not perfect on Twitter either. So anyway, I ran into this article the other day in the New Republic. The New Republic is not exactly a fringe outlet, and it's another one of these, you know, bombings of the idea of the Constitution. First, it makes a full-throated argument full of all of these kind of strange points about hypocrisy and all of these other things for why the Democrats, should they win, need to pack the court. They need to add justices either two so that they can get a slight conservative majority or four so they can have a solid liberal majority on the court. So now we're talking about a Supreme Court with not nine, but either 11 or 13 
justices specifically so that there is more Democrat advantage. And there's all these kind of bad arguments for that. But then the, the title of the article is that the Constitution is the crisis. Okay? The Constitution is the crisis. Hold up. No. No. The Constitution is the thing that prevents the crisis from morons who want to do things like throw the Constitution in the trash when they don't get their way. And so I read this article, and it says that the left should be working to abolish the Constitution and either replace it of a new one of their design that's updated according to their, um, as they say, undeniable moral superiority over that of the framers of the Constitution, which, of course, they're saying, well, they had slaves, so they're obviously immoral rather than they were possibly just as moral and just as clear-headed in a different historical context, which is actually at the heart of their whole damn concept of theory in the first place, is that cultures are in their own uh, context and time and space. But never, nevertheless, all of a sudden, we're, they're, they're un, we have it. No, 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 not we. The woke of today have an undeniable moral superiority to the framers of the Constitution, the authors of liberalism, the authors of uh, the documents that led to the first wholesale abolishment of slavery and ending of, of racial inequality, like institutional racial inequality, real discrimination in the history of the world. Not perfectly, not painlessly, not quickly enough. But the people who wrote down the principles that were the, that, that, that in their fulfillment through time would become the answer to their failings that were, in many respects, part and parcel with their time. And you can read their own struggles about that in their own words. We've, we've recorded them. We have them. They're, they're available. And we're supposed to get rid of that now because the woke have clear moral superiority, which then therefore obviously translates into clear capacity to rule over other people and rewrite the rules of the game on their terms. Or they say, maybe we'll just not have a constitution at all. We'll just govern according to whoever has the power, which is, you know, the point of a constitution is actually to remove the human as much as possible to remove the human as much as possible. In other words, to take something like the organization of an entire society, which is a fundamentally human enterprise, and to put down a set of principles and ideals and goals and procedures that take the moment-to-moment -moment ugliness of being a human with our, with our selfish motivations, with our biases, with whatever, everything else, out of the equation. It is a step toward legal objectivity. We call these the neutral principles of constitutional law, which critical race theory in the introduction to the book titled Critical Race Theory in Introduction by Delgado and Stefanczyk say that the point of critical race theory is to question at its very base the liberal order, enlightenment rationalism, uh, equality theory, and the neutral principles of constitutional law. And these people are the ones who are morally superior and are now going to get rid of the Constitution, abolish the Constitution. And I read this article and I'm aghast. 
because one of the rules of wokeness is that the slope is always slippery, isn't it? They say they're going to do a thing and they push for it and they push for it and they push for it until they get it. Why? Because they can't compromise. Of course they can't compromise. Compromising is complicity. Complicity with the status quo. Every inch that you compromise is status quo that you are still agreeing to. Dismantling the status quo, overthrowing the status quo, abolishing the status quo, resisting the status quo in every regard is the heart of the theory. So now we have a mainstream outlet with not a huge but a significant voice writing an article saying that the goal for the left should be to get rid of the Constitution entirely and pack the court in the meantime. Or, if they can't, let's just ignore the Supreme Court because uh, it shouldn't have to apply to what they want to do anyway. They should be unaccountable to objective principles because they have clear moral superiority. And you know what I say to that? Pardon me. I know that people with tender ears listen to this, but fuck that. Fuck all of that. So I'm not so crude as to say that that article led me to vote for Trump or some silliness. This has been a buildup. We can consider that article to be something like the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, because I understand how it works, okay? I understand how this works. First of all, I understand how theory works and how it is uncompromising and how it drives to get to its goals. And its goals include that subjective standards that they're in control of with their undeniable bid on moral superiority over the rest of us being their right to rule secondly i know practically how it works there was a talk given at the claremont institute again not an institute i normally am a big fan of that said that the basic Boiled down nuts and bolts of this election are these. You have in Trump a man who is very pro-America. You have a man running for president who loves America for all of, with all of his faults, with all of his humanness, with all of his ugliness, with all of his warts, with all of his bumps. You have a man who loves America. And he's going up against a man who is controlled by a movement that hates America. And that's the key observation. Biden isn't the room. You've heard the room is not the room. You're talking to something bigger and broader. Biden is not the room. Biden is irrelevant at best. Biden is George Bridges. For those of you familiar with the Evergreen State College story, Biden is George Bridges at worst. Biden is very unlikely to be woke. I don't think that Biden has a ton of consistency in his principles, to be honest with you. Not to say that Trump does either, except that Trump is rather unabashedly pro-America, um, at least in his conception of what America is. Uh, I don't think Biden is woke. I don't know about Kamala Harris, who we have to admit is likely to uh, have a good shot at becoming president before the end of the four years if we elect Biden with her on the ticket. I don't know. Uh, she's not likable. She pulls some woke tricks. I think it's just about power. Well, wokeness is great about great for power. I don't trust her. Um, I don't think the voters trusted her either. She did terribly in the Democratic primaries. 
Um, but I don't think Biden's woke, and I don't think that it matters. I don't think George Bridges was woke either. I think that George Bridges was permissive to wokeness, and that's enough, because this is a matter of a movement. It doesn't matter what establishment Democrats believe, as far as I can tell, because Democrats, establishment Democrats can't do anything about their woke problem. They are controlled. They are pinned in. And even if they could, it wouldn't matter. Even if they could come out, even if Biden could come out and make the strongest statements, it wouldn't matter, because that's not how woke works. Woke works by infiltrating administrative bureaucracies and filling them with busybodies who sell policies for everybody else. That's one of the tools that the woke use. They change policy at the administrative level, where it's unaccountable to legislatures, where it's not going to get stopped unless you have executives above it who are willing to take a stand against it. Trump has done this in the executive order that's nominally against critical race theory, but is in fact against a set of divisive beliefs and actions that both prohibit critical race theory, a critical theory based in uh, sexual or sex identity, and uh, also white supremacy and patriarchy, by the way. They prevent any discrimination, scapegoating, or stereotyping based on race or sex uh, in an even-handed way that points in all directions. You don't hear that a lot from the people who are mad about the fact that the executive order prevents teaching the divisive concepts in critical race theory, but it actually also would prevent teaching white supremacy in any regard whatsoever, including the woke version. Wokeness infiltrates administrative bureaucracies. I gained some prominence a year or so, a little over a year ago, for saying that wokeness is operating like a Trojan horse. I think other people have said it. I think a lot of people notice that it operates like a Trojan horse. Trojan horse in the story was full of assassins, and they came out, and they killed the guards, and they opened the gate, and the army could come through. The woke Trojan horse is not full of assassins. It's full of bureaucrats. It's full of people who want to go to boring administrative meetings and set community guidelines and policies for everybody. That's where wokeness operates. If wokeness has a permissive executive above it, whether that's directly above it in the office or whether that's at the top of the office in the office of the presidency as far as the federal government is concerned, wokeness will infiltrate deeply into the administrative state, the administrative bureaucracy, and institute itself in ways that are almost impossible to get rid of. You won't get rid of it in 50 years. And this has already happened to a tremendous degree. It even happens under Trump. So I shudder to think what would happen under Biden, who is open to this idea. He's permissive of this idea. He is panders to this idea quite openly, and he has championed ideas like the Title IX changes back in 2011 that turned many respects of the Title IX office into kangaroo courts across all of our universities and helped to open the Pandora's box that is this hot mess all over the United States right now. Biden is not strong against this, but even if he were, it would barely matter. Trump is somewhat strong against this, and that's going to be barely enough. And let me just clear something up. I don't think Trump is going to fix this, okay? Trump can't fix this. That's not how this works. And that's why this is a difficult decision. The culture is where the 
it matters. And Trump is inflaming the hell out of the culture. The hard question is, is what Trump is doing leading people to understand how off the rails this woke coup is that's taking over, it has taken over, it has control of the Democratic Party, it has control of a great deal of our left-leaning media, it totally owns the universities, it owns most of our education systems, it completely owns our colleges of teacher education. These are nightmares, and these all need to be cleaned out. But it does control the Democratic Party, too, and it will control the administrative bureaucracies in every one of those kinds of institutions, including the federal government, under permissive head. Trump is barely a bulwark against this. He's doing some stuff to get rid of it, but even the EO that he put out, the executive order he puts out, has major problems. It has to be enforced. It has to be enforced by people who know what they're doing, against, up against people who are slippery with their language and know how to change the meanings of words out from under you. That's another thing, by the way, that the woke does. It can change your policy without changing your policy just by changing the words or the context in which they're understood, changing the definitions of the words. We saw that with, with, with Barrett's confirmation. She said sexual orientation. You have every major Democratic politician in the last, like, what, 12 months saying sexual orientation. She says sexual orientation. Somebody complains. Next thing you know, Merriam-Webster changes the fucking definition that day. That day? You can't empower this. You can't empower this. They change it to make her wrong in the dictionary that day. This is how this shit works. And if you don't get it, you're missing the point. Biden is not the room. Biden is permissive of it. Even somebody who's not permissive of it can barely control it. And even if they could, they couldn't. Trump will inflame the public. It will get worse on the ground. The insanity will get worse in our institutions outside of the federal government, but it might give our federal agencies a chance to breathe and do some real work, to do real investigations, and to bring, say, you know, good legislation like the actual Civil Rights Act to bear upon these excesses, these clearly discriminatory, hostile workplace environment generating excesses that this explosion of wokeness, unmitigated explosion of wokeness over the summer has brought upon our workplaces through our where? Administrative bureaucracies in the HR department, infecting up to the C-suite. Where? It's always there. Infecting our universities. Where? At the level of gigantic bloated administrations where universities because of COVID are about to collapse under their own financial weight. And yet they still are increasing their budgets for diversity, equity, and inclusion and hiring expensive diversity, equity, inclusion officers. Administrative bureaucracies is where this shit takes over. That's how it gets in. That's where it manipulates and it sets policies. It's the guy that comes in or the woman half the time that comes in, more than half the time I would say, comes into your organization, gets on your freaking Slack channel and is like, I know. I'll write up some community guidelines for us. The workplace community needs these kinds of guidelines. That It's a little more inclusive here. It's those people who decide to define the community for you and then decide to, de to define the rules for the community for you. Those are the people. And they're all full of critical theory that they learned in universities and they fill administrative bureaucracies. Trump can barely control it in his administration. He's going to drive the population crazy. The best hope we have is that that buys time for the, hopefully there are some adults in the room somewhere who are going to file lawsuits, who are going to push back on this, who are going to make the argument. And meanwhile, meanwhile, while real things are happening that actually start to remove the woke threat from our world in material ways, meanwhile, we have the opportunity to make the argument 
against a culture that's losing its mind with wokeness because it's not getting its way. Because that's what I see right now. I see the left. I see people saying, oh, we need to, to, to vote for Biden to calm them down. Wokeness will calm down. No, wokeness can't compromise. It takes as much ground as it can get, and it holds that ground forever. It cannot compromise. It cannot go back. It cannot give way. It cannot meet with half measures. Because that would be against the cardinal principle of the theory. It can't do it. So Trump will inflame things in the culture. He creates a flimsy but existent bulwark to it institutionalizing at the level of administrative policy throughout our federal government. He creates an institutional bulwark that will prevent ease of passage of legislation uh, because it could become legislative and then our, our nightmares begin in earnest. Um, Biden will not do that. Biden can't have this office. Now, let me get some let me get something straight for you guys. I live in a solidly red state. Solidly red. My vote in this election isn't going to matter. It's wholly symbolic. I could save my reputation if that's what this is about by saying I'm not going to vote. I'm going to vote for myself. I'm going to vote for a third-party candidate. I'm going to just skip the president, and I'm going to vote down ballot, and I'm going to vote how I feel, blah, blah, blah. I could do all that, but I didn't say that. I said I'm probably going to have to vote for Trump. It's wholly symbolic, and the symbol is this has to stop. This cannot be empowered. None of these ideas that the woke movement that controls what will happen under a Biden administration, whatever Biden does, can be empowered. We have in California an attempt with very awfully manipulative lying language under, I think it's called Prop 16, to remove the anti-discrimination language from the state constitution of California so that you can discriminate positively for certain races, which by default creates the situation where you're discriminating negatively against other races, which I hear from people in all 50 states is basically the de facto state of affairs that's happening anyway, uh, and until people get the uh, necessary information and the courage to contact the appropriate attorneys that's going to continue. Um, people will have to be sued, otherwise these policies are going to stay in place because people doing risk assessments in the, in the uh, central offices Corporate offices are going to keep thinking that pandering to the woke thing is the best thing there is for business. Um, and this isn't this isn't okay. These ideas cannot they cannot be empowered at that level. So I have to, despite it being symbolic, despite it destroying credibility with the audience, I think I have to reach the most, which is the center left, for stupid reasons stupid immature reasons it destroys my credibility with them for stupid immature reasons as though i didn't spend literally two years articulating the complexity of this decision and wrestling with this decision 
and thinking my way through this decision and watching developments to lead to this decision, it destroys the credibility with these idiots who don't want to think, but only want to react to what they perceive as a gigantic threat in the other direction. But I'm doing it anyway, because this has to stop. This cannot be empowered. The woke movement will control the administrative bureaucracy, at which point we're stuck with it. That can't happen. George Bridges didn't have to be woke to destroy Evergreen. He had to allow an equity council to push through an equity program while a rowdy bunch of students became absolutely unaccountable underneath it. And they turned into gangs, bullying gangs, and they ultimately ended up melting the college down. And we don't need to see that happen to America. So no, a stand has to be taken. So this wasn't a decision I made in haste. It wasn't a decision I made comfortably, and it's not a decision I'm particularly happy about, but it's a decision I'm mostly confident in and standing by. Um, it was not the result of a single article. The single article was the last straw on something that has been building up for months. You can't gaslight people forever. And I'm not saying that Trump is some paragon of truth. The guy goes up there and just says, you know, whatever kind of twisty bullshit works for the moment. Half the time it's just kind of these weird made-up spins and stuff that doesn't make sense and whatever else. And it appears that the man has authoritarian tendencies, at least in his rhetoric, that doesn't seem to necessarily come out in his policy. Um, and of course, I understand that that's concerning. So people feel like they're now having to choose between an authoritarian and hopefully the calmer space that Joe Biden might bring to us if he's elected. But what people don't understand, or I really don't think they understand, is that the woke ideology that controls the movement, that will control what happens under a Biden administration, again, Biden is not the room, that ideology is totalizing. It is a totalitarian. It's not authoritarian. It's totalitarian. It is a totalitarian movement. The difference is that an authoritarian movement is going to kind of, you know, set very strict regulations. you got these military parades and all of this crap. A totalitarian movement cares what you think. It's going to get into your head. If you think the wrong thing, or you don't at least perform that you're thinking the right things, you're screwed. Totalitarianism is much scarier than authoritarianism, which is no defense of authoritarianism, but if you have to pick between the two, it's no contest. Totalitarianism is the stuff of 1984, which is why we have this whole 2 plus 2 equals 4 or 5 thing that's been happening all summer. This can't be empowered. Micromanaging busybodies who like to go to meetings will fill administrative bureaucracies empowered by a permissive rubber stamp or even encouraging executive. And we're going to be stuck with a totalitarian ideology with a very... Uh, invigorated base. The radicals will run wild. The only thing that I think would reel them in is something like uh, 
a social credit system, which is a totalitarian move. Um, defund the police, community policing, spy on your neighbor, social credit, can't buy anything. Okay, it could work, I guess. It's not what anybody wants. Performative Facebook post or you aren't going to be able to buy lunch this week. That's, that is kind of a direction of like worst case scenario there. I'm not saying that if Biden gets elected, that's what's happening. But I am saying that the kinds of things that we saw under woke excesses in universities that led to the collapse of the Evergreen State College when in a particular excess are going to become the standard of the United States. We There was an article a year or two ago titled, We All Live on Campus Now, or something like that, or We're All on Campus Now, referring to the fact that the woke problem had burst out of the campus environment, like my colleagues and I predicted it would and were called idiots for. And we all live on campus now. Well, if Biden's elected, it will genuinely be that case. We will all live on campus now. The kinds of uh, administrative policy set by diversity, equity, and inclusion councils and the likes, things that are actually already happening in our states, they're already happening in our schools, are all going to be protected, defended, and entrenched under a sympathetic and permissive uh, administrator. This isn't acceptable and it can't happen, so I'm voting for Trump. End of story. If you don't like it, I'm sorry, but I hope you understand after almost an hour of trying to explain it to you that this was a decision I made with a lot of thought and a lot of wrestling and a lot of watching and a lot of, let me just be very clear, really well-informed observation. I'm not shooting from the hip. I'm not fighting from emotion. I am watching what's happening and I know how it works. And my message is Biden cannot win. I say that as somebody who wants to stay apolitical, I didn't want to have to do this. I don't want to have to do this. I'm pissed off that I have to do this. Um, but nevertheless, it's where it is. So, make America great again. <laughs>